0: I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing developments between China and the Solomon Islands, how they fit into China's broader Pacific strategy, and how Australia views these activities. Last month, China confirmed widely shared rumors that it has signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands a small Pacific island country located approximately 2,000 kilometers northeast of Australia. The United States, Australia, and New Zealand have voiced concerns that the new pact potentially lays the groundwork for a permanent Chinese military presence in the area. China has spent decades making inroads with Pacific island countries. It became the region's largest trading partner in 2013. Beijing has leveraged its influence to convince several Pacific Island countries, including the Solomon Islands, to switch their diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China. Right now, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is engaging in an unprecedented tour of eight countries in the region. This includes the Solomon Islands, Kiribati, Samoa, Tonga, Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, Timor-Leste, and Fiji. What are China's ultimate goals in the Solomon Islands and the wider region? How concerned should the United States and its allies and partners in the region be about China's rising influence? Joining me to discuss these questions is Professor Rory Medcalf. Professor Medcalf is the head of the National Security College at the Australian National University and a non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute. From 2007 to 2015, he served as a founding director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program. Rory, thank you for joining us today.
1: A real pleasure. Good to be with you, Bonnie.
0: So our discussion today is focused on the Solomon Islands and China's Pacific Strategy and how Australia views China and is responding to China. So if we could, let's start with getting some background on the region. Can you give us some context about the Pacific Islands and why the Solomon Islands, why they're so important when looking at the region?
1: Well, thank you. And I I offer these thoughts not as a a specialist on the uh, societies or the cultures or the politics of uh, the Pacific, uh, but really as someone who looks at Australia's strategic environment and who looks at the Pacific as an integral part of that. And so the region we're talking about, the Pacific or the Southwest Pacific, so essentially Melanesia uh, extending into, into Micronesia, is incredibly important from the perspectives not only of those countries, but of, uh, for instance, Australia, New Zealand, and key powers across the Indo-Pacific, because this region is uh, not only part of the a connective tissue of the the broader Indo-Pacific system. It's also a region of developing states of small and diverse nations on their own development paths, with their own challenges of governance and resource use and, and health and so forth. It's also a region that, for most of its history, and certainly most of its uh, its modern history, has not been uh, a zone of major power rivalry or confrontation or conflict with the obvious and and stark exception of the second world war in the pacific from an australian perspective it's important because it's a region where we want to see the peaceful and i would say democratic development of societies and states uh, according to their own choices it's a region where resource use and resource management is going to be increasingly important in the years and decades to come fisheries uh, forests and, and more and it's also obviously a region of strategic importance because it's literally between australia and the united states or between australia and much of the rest of the broader region if you're looking to for example isolate and blockade australia strategically in a crisis or conflict then the Southwest Pacific is the place to be, which the Imperial Japanese uh, military uh, sought to do in the Second World War. And that's one of the reasons why the growth of China's power and influence uh, is of such concern here in Canberra.
0: Thank you, Rory. I'd love to follow up on the point that you just made about blockade later in this conversation. But let me first ask you to uh, discuss a bit of what you see as China's growing influence in the region. So in 2019, the Solomon Islands and Kiribati switched recognition from Taipei to Beijing. And more recently, we're seeing a lot more Chinese activity. What are you most concerned with when it comes to Chinese activities in the region? And what what are you watching monitoring the most?
1: So my starting point would be to say that it's unrealistic, and unhelpful to begin with the view that China should have absolutely no role in the Pacific uh, or in the Southwest Pacific. You know, there's been activity by people of Chinese origin, Chinese businesses, uh, and of course, the modern state, uh, the, the PRC, and also incidentally by Taiwan for, for many, many years uh, in the Pacific and that's, that, that's, that's, that's reasonable and it's, um, it, it makes sense for the populations of those countries to have a range of external powers uh, being present. But what's changed in recent years is the scale, the intensity, the ambition of what the PRC is doing in the Pacific. And how that seems to fit with disturbing broader trends of the Belt and Road Initiative, the use of economic uh, and diplomatic influence for purposes of state power, the securitization of China's role across the broader region, military presence, naval activity, but also paramilitary presence and activity, the use of policing for, for China's state purposes. The scale of all of this has increased pretty profoundly in recent years, and the ambition has increased. So not only is uh, China a large and growing provider of development assistance, infrastructure, investment, and so forth to developing countries and small countries in the region, but it's becoming quite clear that all of this comes with political and strategic strings attached for Australian security observers, some points of real concern have been, uh, obviously, most recently, the, um, or, or second most recently, I should say, the um, revelations of a China-Solomon Islands security agreement that, in my view, is something of a blank check for China's security presence uh, in that strategically vital uh, part of the region. And most recently, of course, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, the reports that the Chinese uh, Foreign Minister's visit, the Guanyu's visit to the region comes with some massive proposed multi-nation agreement, uh, which I think is, is is pretty risky and unrealistic. But also indications like the, the strong interest in, by Chinese entities in building infrastructure that has strategic purposes or strategic intent by seeking to play a dominant role in telecommunications and connectivity, and in bringing China's version of social order to these societies. So there's a whole raft of activity that surprises us at one level, because, you know, if you look in a purely uh, strategic sense at at China's interests across the Indo-Pacific, you could argue that the Indian Ocean is actually more important to China than the South Pacific. Uh, The Indian Ocean involves the supply lines of of energy and and trade that um that china requires for its development and links china to the middle east and africa and, and ultimately to europe whereas the southwest pacific is kind of a branch line of the belt and road and so there must be some motive other than connectivity that's prompting china's interest there and all of this is relatively new and challenging to australia's security planners who since the 1940s and the uh, defeat of Imperial Japan have worked to prevent a potentially hostile great power being present in this part of the world, and who've often operated on the somewhat complacent assumption that it just wouldn't happen. So that's where we stand.
0: So as you're looking at this relatively comprehensive and increased scale of Chinese activity in the region, is there... A shared assessment in Australia about what China's ultimate goals are for the region?
1: That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure exactly what a shared assessment is outside of the classified world of the policy and intelligence communities. And, you know, I, I would like to think there is a shared assessment, assessment there, but I um, I'm, I'm not privy to it. But if you look at the broader public and policy and political debate about this, I think there is a consensus emerging, and that is that China has multiple objectives in the region. And that in a sense, whatever those objectives are, and I think that, you know, I don't think all of the objectives, for example, are about strategically isolating Australia. uh, And this is not all some grand scheme to subvert the region. There are also going to be some predictable commercial motives at play. But whatever the ultimate objectives are, in a sense, the effect is going to be the same. You know, the sheer Scale and potential of uh, of what the PRC could bring to the Pacific means that the interests and the priorities of governments and societies are going to be distorted, that the balance of power could change quite radically in this part of the world uh, relatively quickly. And all of this with relatively modest investment by China, because remember, the, the societies and nations in this part of the world are, are generally very small. Infrastructure is thin. Resources are, in many cases, only barely exploited. And uh, military presence of any power in this region is quite, is quite small. I mean, Australia's own forces uh, have not traditionally been concentrated along our east coast. In New Zealand, for all of its, um, its role in helping to provide order, to the region is not exactly a formidable military power. In fact, the, um, the, the French are one of the, um, the main naval forces in this part of the world and they're quite small too. So the impact could be quite big and distorting even if we end up only seeing you know, a small number of Chinese warships operating uh, here on a regular basis and perhaps only relatively small contingents of Chinese forces on relatively small bases. That's still going to have a transformative effect bearing in mind that many of these small countries don't actually have military forces of their own. They basically have paramilitary or policing forces at best.
0: So let me now turn to the two developments that you had already alluded to earlier. Could you walk us through what Australia currently knows with respect to China's new security agreement with the Solomon Islands? In particular, what is most worrisome for Australia of this agreement and What do you see as potentially next in terms of what could happen?
1: Well, thanks. I'll I'll track back a little bit, if I may, to around 2018, when a lot of the the real alarm in Australia's policy debate began about China's role in the Pacific. Uh, Because 2018 was uh, the year when first reports began appearing that there was an interest in China establishing a military presence in this part of the world. Focus was initially on Vanuatu and it's been reported recently. In fact, in comments by former intelligence chief, uh, Nick Warner, that uh, there have been many attempts by China to establish a security presence in this region over the years and that our agencies and presumably working with our allies have been quite effective. In in each case, neutralising that attempt, whether it's through, I guess, influence or persuasion, or or working with the uh, the good offices of, of governments in the region. So there's been concern for now four years at least that China would establish a security presence, but that accelerated in recent months precisely because it became publicly known that there was a uh, a draft. Uh, Security agreement between China and Solomon Islands. In fact, that draft was very close to conclusion and has now moved very rapidly to conclusion. The text of that was leaked and published online, and neither China nor Solomon Islands government have disputed that that is the text of the draft. So the final is probably quite similar to that. And as I said, that reads to me like a bit of a blank check for China to be active, having a security presence in Solomon Islands. It does not specify that there will be a military base or that there can be a military base but it speaks about china being able to deploy forces to protect its interests it's quite clear that these can be armed forces it's quite clear that these can be military or paramilitary in addition to policing there's reference to warships to logistics to access And there's very, very little fine print about the, you know, effectively the terms and conditions. Now, would there need to be some kind of status of forces agreement? Would there need to be further agreements to be negotiated were this to translate into any particular forces on the ground? That's that's actually an open question in my view. And I guess what many of us are concerned about in Australia is that rather than suddenly seeing an enormous Chinese military base in Solomon Islands tomorrow, which I think is and remains um, somewhat far-fetched, there'll be instead a gradual, steady, but reasonably rapid accumulation of a force presence, perhaps beginning, for example, with converting some kind of seemingly private sector, Chinese-owned or leased facility into a security base, perhaps having a presence that is initially policing or paramilitary or marines, perhaps some modest air assets, perhaps uh, one or two visiting warships, but all of this accumulating to becoming uh, a base in being. And most importantly, this being only the first of multiple Chinese bases or access points in the Pacific, you know, off Australia's East Coast, uh, perhaps to our north as well, perhaps extending eventually as a chain of access points all the way back to the South China Sea, a so-called first island chain. I don't think that's become far-fetched anymore. And for those of us who have followed this for many years and are sometimes, I guess a little a little criticised in, in the public debate for being alarmist, We have to just remember how rapidly this conversation has shifted so that now, for example, both sides of politics in Australia treat this as a major national concern.
0: How do you see the Solomon Islands interest playing a role in terms of how China may increase its presence? Are Solomon Islands interested in having a much larger Chinese presence over time? Or could they be using um, this potential agreement with China to get more leverage, uh, more incentives, and maybe even more aid from Australia and other countries in the region?
1: That's a very useful way of bringing us into that part of the conversation because I don't think that for one moment observers and analysts from Australia or the United States or, or anywhere else for that matter can or should be dictating to small countries in the region who they should or shouldn't talk to. And ultimately, whoever speaks for Solomon Island's interests in this matter really has to be coming from their perspective. I think that the agency of small countries has to be a big part of this conversation. And that's why I'd go to two shared concerns here. One is that the issue is not only about potential Chinese force presence in the region and what it would mean projecting externally towards Australia or New Zealand or, or whoever else it may be, but what it means internally for these countries. For instance, even if we don't see what you could call a military base in Solomon Islands in the next few years, you will highly likely see a robust policing presence. And in a country where there is significant social unrest, I mean, don't forget that The catalyst for this whole conversation was the protesting and riots late last year in Honiara, uh, in the capital of Solomon Islands, including against uh, actual or perceived Chinese interests. Um, So in other words, we're talking at one level, a a divided polity and a law and order issue. If this ends up leading to a Chinese police presence that is suppressing local dissent from parts of Solomon Island's community in the name of uh, the leadership, or at least the prime minister of that country, that could actually worsen the tensions, heighten the dissent and unrest. This is a country, after all, that not so long ago was almost in a state of, of civil war, certainly armed civil strife, you know, going back 20 years or so. That's hardly good for the interests of Solomon Islands. It's hardly good for the interests of other countries in the region. And ultimately, it's not actually good for China's interests either. So I think we need to keep that as part of the conversation. But to go to the other part of your question, uh, what's in it for Solomon Islands? Again, I think we need to look a a little bit below the hood and decide what's in it for the different interests and players in that democracy because there is significant opposition as well to the prospect of a larger Chinese presence. It seems to me at the moment that uh, what's being proposed is good for the interests and power of the current prime minister uh, in Solomon Islands and, and essentially his faction, but that's only in the short term. If, if this stirs up further dissent, it's not going to be good for anyone in the long run.
0: You mentioned uh, earlier this conversation about the fear that Chinese military presence on the Solomon Islands and maybe some of the other islands in the region could allow China, not necessarily immediately, but in the longer term or, or even medium term, to be able to implement a uh, potential blockade against Australia. In terms of, I guess, if you were to think in terms of worst case planning for as China expands its presence on the Solomon Islands, Would having just a military presence there and not in other islands around the region, would that be sufficient for China to be able to have a large enough force in your neighborhood to be able to implement a blockade or would China need much more than that?
1: Look, short answer is no. And that's where we've got to keep all of this in proportion and perspective. Uh, And that's why there's still time and scope for Australia and partner countries to act to give uh, Solomon Islands and other countries in the Pacific alternatives, to give them options. You know, the ideal is to have multiple options for development assistance, for infrastructure, for trade, for all of the you know, perceived benefits of the China relationship and to ensure, therefore, that these states' political and security choices are not beholden to one power and especially not to an authoritarian great power uh, that, In my view, does not have their interests at heart. So, in other words, um, we've still got time to limit the impact of this particular agreement. Time may be running out in a sense because China has played its hand very openly now. The current uh, tour through the region of uh, the Chinese foreign minister is is extraordinary because it seems to be signalling a desire to build uh, agreements with many countries at once, uh, not only on Security, but much more broadly on on economic and, and other forms of engagement, and that that kind of is a I think a premature declaration of Chinese intent to to dominate the region. I don't think that will actually resonate well in those societies, and I do worry therefore, that the long run intent for China or even the medium term intent is to have multiple military access points. The good news from a security perspective of Australia or other regional countries is that one small base is not going to ultimately change the balance so much that, for example, our country could be blockaded in a crisis. But even a small presence would tie up significant forces of our own, forces which otherwise may be uh, deployed to support allied efforts in some kind of wider regional deterrence. Whether it's whether it's a Taiwan scenario or whether it's another confrontational conflict scenario, so it does change the game in that sense for Australia, and therefore it's a it's a really undesirable outcome.
0: You mentioned earlier that uh, Wang Yi was tra- Chinese Foreign Minister. Wang Yi is traveling to the region now, and he's traveling to eight different uh, countries. And I couldn't help but notice that as you were talking about. Chinese interest since 2018 in the region that many of the places that he's going to now have have been regions in which we've seen China demonstrate interest in establishing military base there or at least in significant infrastructure developments. Could you just unpack a little bit more of as you look at Wang Yi's visit, which comes on the heels of the recent Quad meeting? How is it perceived in Australia, and what is the concern of what could come from this visit?
1: So a couple of things, and firstly, I might just wind back to a point you drove that earlier, which I didn't perhaps fully answer, which is the question of whether, in fact, Pacific countries are are going to play off this external power interest in, um, in their neighbourhood and therefore extract, you know, a maximum uh, set of benefits economically or otherwise. At one level, I, I can see the logic of that happening, but in a sense, I think that the the real conversation and i think this is the conversation that australia's new foreign minister penny wong is going to have as she uh, for example goes to fiji uh, around about now is to argue who can be the the reliable sustainable partner or who can be the collection of reliable sustainable partners for these societies and countries and that's where i would actually direct your listeners to take a look at the indian ocean experience you know i plenty of argument that the Indo-Pacific is not always a a perfectly uniform region, but some of the interests of Indian Ocean Island countries, I'm thinking Maldives, Sri Lanka for that matter, and the way in which they've found China's engagement to be, to put it politely, a a mixed blessing, that's pretty illuminating for small countries in the Pacific that, that at the moment may be thinking... Understandably, we'll try to extract maximum benefit from China. Oh, and maximum benefit from uh, the democracies as well. So, turning back to your question about the, the tour through the region, the really unprecedented regional procession of uh, the Chinese foreign minister, presumably offering all kinds of economic gifts, but bringing political strings attached as well. What does that signal? It signals. Uh, it does signal Chinese ambition, and I do, I think it does signal. Ambition and a certain degree of, of arrogance, frankly, in, in seeking kind of easy dominance of this region and assuming that the diversity of views within those countries can be can be overruled with some grand made in China document, if you like. I think also, though, it's uh, it, it's a signal. But now's the time for a wide range of players to mobilise, to really demonstrate to um, developing countries uh, in the Pacific and elsewhere uh, that they have alternatives. So in a way, the, the conversations begin now. An interesting data point for me is the way in which uh, journalists in Solomon Islands this week have effectively declared a boycott of covering the visit precisely because of the degree of information control and censorship that accompanies it. So that's a nice little signal to civil society and and to journalists elsewhere in the Pacific to start applying a lot more scrutiny to determine in their minds what China wants uh, and what the price, the real price will be.
0: Of the eight different countries that uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is visiting, are there particular countries that are of more concern to Australia in terms of potential Chinese inroads or or in terms of Australia's security?
1: Look at one level, I'm I'm hesitant to um, to make choices here because you know the, with the principle of the equal sovereignty of nations, all of these countries are important. Their interests and their agency matters. But there is a point of scale that I would note, and that is that of course Papua New Guinea is by far the most substantial and populous of these countries, and in a sense, you know, the future of uh, the strategic picture in the southwest Pacific is going to depend uh, very much on choices made in Port Moresby. So I would argue that even if democratic nations, and of course, you know, we are talking about democratic nations here in the Pacific, but even if democratic external powers or Indo-Pacific powers struggle to limit China's influence in some of the smaller island nations, the really vital player here will will be Papua New Guinea. Uh, and that's where I think a lot of the, uh, the contest for reasonable outcomes will eventually be determined.
0: So you just, you mentioned that uh, your foreign minister, Penny Wong is traveling to Fiji. And I'm assuming that the, that's probably just the first of many steps that Australia, as well as regional governments will take in response to Wang Yi's visit to the region, as well as the overall Chinese uh, effort. I guess from those of us sitting in DC we're observing that uh, Australia has a new government now and we would just lo- I would just love your thoughts on to what extent do you believe this new labor government will continue the prior government's uh, policies on China as well as the as forward leaning as your prior government in its willingness to push back against both Chinese efforts in at home in Australia, but also in your region more broadly?
1: So my starting point is to be reasonably confident about what the new Australian government will bring to advancing and protecting our our interests and values in the region, and not only Australia's interests and values, but those of democratic uh, partners and, and of course, uh, our alliance with the United States as well. You know, I think the context for this is that the Government that was defeated in the, in the recent uh, Australian federal election, the conservative uh, coalition government of Scott Morrison, while it became politically tone deaf on quite a few issues and some would argue was always a bit tone deaf on those issues and climate change uh, was um, really foremost among those. It did do some very substantial things to protect and advance our security interests over the past few years and both not only the Turnbull uh, government before it and the Abbott government before that but this really drags back into a kind of a um, a fairly positive positive chain of Australian governments that have had a lot more continuity in foreign and security policy than our domestic politics would um, would sometimes suggest so The good news is that the new government is not going to disown the accomplishments of the previous government in improving uh, national security capability or orientation in this country. The the pushback against Chinese foreign interference in Australia or the region, uh, the commitment to improve our defence capabilities, the, the nuclear powered submarine program which is the um, you know, the, I guess the flagship of the so-called AUKUS agreement, the partnership of the Quad and so forth. But if the new government meets the test that it's set itself, which is to continue um, strong national security policies and can combine that with a, uh, a more engaged and, and frankly, uh, in-touch orientation in its diplomacy with the region – Think, for example, about the the very positive messaging that uh, Penny Wong and the Australian Prime Minister um, Anthony Albanese have set out on climate policy, for example, which puts us much more in step with the interests of the neighbourhood, that in some ways we may be able to have the best of both worlds. Now, the question here, of course, is whether the new government will maintain that national security commitment. The early signal uh, that the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister gave to the Quad Summit, in Tokyo which they flew to immediately after their election win is pretty promising but this is where allies and partners now have to sort of keep each other in step and I'd also add this is not all about Australia so one thing that um that struck me recently for example is the way in which Europe you know the Europeans with their Indo-Pacific strategic outlook which was a little overshadowed last year uh around the time that um Australia, the US, and the UK declared their their AUKUS agreement. Um, But the European Indo Pacific strategy is very much about comprehensive engagement with this region to help with development, sure, to help economically, sure, but also to provide alternatives to Chinese authoritarianism. So I'm actually reasonably confident that we can make progress now.
0: Rory, I'd like to end this podcast. Uh, We've covered a, a range of issues. On a, qu- a question for you in terms of what recommendations you have for Australia as it works with the United States, regional partners like New Zealand, but also, as you mentioned just a moment ago, European partners who are becoming more active. What would you recommend that the Australian government could do? And what would you recommend for other partners such as the United States, New Zealand and European countries? What can they do to help your effort in the region?
1: Well, the first advice is kind of obvious, but it's sometimes difficult for governments to heed, and that is to have staying power, to to play a long game. I mean, you know, this current crisis, and I would say there is essentially a a security crisis in the South Pacific or the Southwest Pacific at the moment uh, of of competition with China. Uh, You know, this could, in a number of months, ease, for example, if um, there are no immediate outcomes from China's current power play if other crises and pressure points emerge as they will we cannot afford to take our eye off this ball and we cannot afford now to take our eye off this ball for for many years so we have to build a new level of engagement and keep it it has to involve many nations collaborating Australia can and should I think play quite a lead role but We need the United States in, we need Japan in, we need our European partners in. We even need ways, I think, to connect Quad activity with the concerns of the Pacific. For instance, the recent announcement that the Quad will coordinate much more vigilant maritime security monitoring, including, for example, on illegal and unregulated fishing, that's potentially a fantastic benefit for the Pacific because I think a lot of the Chinese pressure in years to come is going to be on the resources, especially the fish stocks of, of these small island countries. So a team effort, I would also emphasize now that the human factor is absolutely vital. So for example, education and training, uh, ensuring that the, uh, that civil society entities, uh, journalists, for example, but also that governance mechanisms, that the bureaucracies uh, that are and the political class in this diverse range of countries across the Southwest Pacific have access to quality uh, information, quality education, and alternatives uh, to what China has to offer. Again, this is all going to remain vital, and. Because the scale of this effort does not need to be enormous, these are relatively small countries. They themselves cannot absorb easily um, some kind of massive onslaught of engagement by, by many countries at once. We can afford to be targeted in what we do as long as we are consistent and as long as we demonstrate that, you know, frankly, that listening, first and foremost, to the concerns of countries of, of the Pacific. I've often heard, and I think it's a reasonable concern from colleagues and friends in, particularly in Melanesia, that this idea of the Indo-Pacific is not good for them. It's not useful for them because it prioritises great power relations over the day-to-day security concerns, health governance, resource management, and so forth of their societies. And it doesn't, if you like, privilege the the idea of the Pacific. And, And... To be fair, Pacific Island nations or or, um, Southwest Pacific nations have already put out very clear declarations of what their security priorities are. But I would turn that around a little bit and say we probably haven't done enough to interpret and explain the Indo-Pacific concept to Pacific countries in ways that genuinely reflect their interests. My own view is that the Indo-Pacific is not only about great power competition it's about privileging the maritime domain it's about privileging multipolarity and sovereignty uh, and these are good things for pacific nations indeed you could argue that the you know the old uh, idea of the asia pacific was no more friendly to their interests than a, than a hard security interpretation of the indo pacific but then the final point i'd make is that we can afford to be much more open in encouraging scrutiny of what China's up to in the Pacific because, after all, this is the country that is the largest emitter of carbon dioxide. This is the country that is most rapidly increasing its military and naval presence. This is the country that has a, a, a pretty unpleasant habit of suppressing the rights and interests of um, of diverse communities and communities that don't fit some kind of of majority uh, in a very undemocratic fashion. None of that is um, good for the stability uh, and the long-term development of small nations.
0: Thank you so much, Rory. That was a very robust list of things that Australia, the United States and our allies and partners should and could do, and a very, very rich discussion on this issue. Thank you again for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.